All right, all right. Welcome to the Center from Reality podcast. Alex Kapitko here. And we start out with basically me asking for a friend about Kanye West and why all of a sudden he is apologizing to the Jewish community in an Instagram post written in Hebrew. I'm just curious why now. Anyways, the Associated Press writes, press writes here in quotes, The rapper formerly known as Kanye West, who has a long history of making anti-Semitic comments, apologized to the Jewish community in an IG post written in Hebrew on Tuesday. Now, for context, Kanye West, who is now known as Ye, it's kind of like Twitter becoming X. I don't want to call them, him by the new name, but it's his name, so I guess we'll do it. He wrote on Instagram, in quotes, I sincerely apologize to the Jewish community for any unintended outburst caused by my words or actions. He continued, It was not my intention to offend or demean, and I deeply regret any pain I may have caused. <laughs> I, I really shouldn't be laughing here, but this is just insane to me. <laughs> because it is so clear what he's doing. He's trying to bounce back. As the Associated Press notes here in quotes, the statement arrives less than two weeks after Ye went on an anti-Semitic rant in Las Vegas while promoting his upcoming album, Vultures. By the way, guys, Vultures is due on January 12th. And anyways, in the rant, I guess in Vegas, he again made <laughs> insinuations about Jewish influence in the media and then once again compared himself to Jesus Christ and Adolf Hitler. I take a lot of issue here because he's clearly just trying to like reckon with his image or save his image before Vultures comes out because he wants to sell albums. Sorry, I don't care if you, you think that's a hot take or you disagree with me. I think it's true. It seems pretty damn obvious. The guy's been on an anti-Semitic rant for years. And the worst part is, is you see people blocking overpasses in Los Angeles with signs that say Kanye's right. Ever since October 7th, you see more, more and more social media posts from less likely people saying, you know, maybe Kanye wasn't so crazy this whole time. Anyways, Kanye has been an anti-Semitic asshole for quite some time now. So none of this is surprising, but he's clearly now apologizing in Hebrew because he doesn't want his album to totally bomb. And I think that's kind of despicable. And anyways, the American Jewish Committee has criticized his use of Hebrew in the apology. It put out a statement, and it says here in quotes, Beyond being bizarre and possibly a ploy to gain more attention, the Hebrew apology posted without translation is inaccessible to most American Jews who do not speak the language. The article, or sorry, their statement goes on in quotes, to be sure, using Hebrew to, to communicate with the Jewish community intentionally denies most American Jews, and consequently non-Jews, the ability to directly see Kanye's apology. It goes on later saying, while he claims that he's committed to learning and greater understanding, this apology speaks to any pain I may have caused, rather than acknowledging the pain that he has caused. Amen. And also it's kind of weird because it looks like he just put this apology into like chat GBT and said, translate this to Hebrew. And it's a really good point because if you don't speak Hebrew, 
you're not going to just directly know what he's saying. Now, of course, in this era, pretty damn easy to translate it. But it seems like it's kind of a half-assed approach. It's, again, his kind of artistic style, his demonized style of saying, like, look, I'm apologizing. I'm being creative here. We're all good. And and, and the problem here, too, is that he, he talks about unintentionally making people mad and hurting the Jewish community. <sighs> Give me a fucking break. He talked about how he loves everyone, including Hitler, and that not everything Hitler did was bad because he created the microphone in freeways. I don't really think either one of those is true. Like, I guess I don't really know who invented the highway because the highway system and all of that jazz kind of been going on for a long time. So it's kind of weird to just say he was really involved in mass infrastructure because, I mean, the Greeks and the Romans... Obviously, up to the Industrial Revolution, the Imperial Age, like a lot of people have been building highways. You could even, if you wanted to look at a modern figure and say he did a good job with highways, maybe look at Dwight Eisenhower, one of the U.S. presidents. Still not like a morally perfect guy, but a much better example. Yeah, you could talk about how he used eminent domain to kick out minority communities and lower income communities from land that they ended up building a lot of freeways on. But it's just weird to me that Hitler's his example and maybe he maybe when he says the microphone he means that hitler gave a microphone to some of the worst demons and instincts in society at the time but yeah i mean it's just insane to me that he comes out and says that he unintentionally pissed off and made the jewish community feel targeted when he basically said he didn't think hitler was all bad i'm not into this whole like triggered rhetoric but yeah i'd be kind of triggered if kanye said that and this is a guy who, I was, I was telling a friend that his, his views on this aside, this is a guy who just does not always know what he's talking about. He's clearly not well. He just puts out word salads. I mean, this is a guy who talks about the abortion holocaust and how it's killing the black community. This is a guy who has talked about how he's Jesus. This is just clearly not a well guy who is just used by some of the worst instincts and people with the worst instincts in our society. I kind of wish he would just be left alone to make music because he's good at that. But I just feel like every time he puts out a statement now, it's either contradictory to what he said last or it's doubling down or making himself sound like a victim. And he's just not helping his case anymore. And, and anyways, music journalist Maria Sherman does say that his latest apology ends with him saying he's committed to learning from this, this experience and making amends. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it, because so far, it's just not the case. It's just not the case from what I've seen. All right, moving on. Yesterday, we talked about Nikki Haley. I think one of the morally weak candidates running against Donald Trump in the Republican primary, but someone that, again, I, I still think would be a better president than Donald Trump for obvious reasons that I've outlined on numerous occasions here. But... <sighs> She is doing something that I don't like and I don't think is good for our legal system and good for our institutions. She has said when asked by a nine-year-old at a New Hampshire campaign event whether she would pardon Trump, basically. And she said that if she were elected president, she would pardon President Trump if convicted of a crime, saying that amnesty would be in the best interest of the country. Now, this parallels to me, 
it's not the same completely, but it, it mirrors, I guess you could say, what Susan Collins and other moderate Republicans said after Trump's first impeachment. This is the one, remember, where he put up the New York Times article in a picture after he was acquitted that said Trump acquitted. And basically, Susan Collins is like, oh, Trump has learned his lesson and it's better for the country that he is acquitted. He's learned he'll be better, blah, 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 blah. And as we've learned, that was what, in 2019? <laughs> I don't think Trump learned his lesson if you look at January 6th and, you know, the second impeachment and what he's saying now. And this is problematic to me because, well, look, Nikki Haley's not going to become president. She's not going to beat Trump unless something insane happens, unless we have just, I don't know, Trump goes to prison. Well, then she, I guess she said she'd, she'd pardon him, but... Basically, he hasn't even been found guilty yet. He's currently facing 87 felony charges across Florida, New York, and Georgia. And this, this ranges from interfering in the election, mishandled classified documents, the porn star one, which I'm not, the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels, which I'm not as crazy about. But anyways, it's, it's a bad precedent because this is someone who's running for president against him basically saying that he should be pardoned even though the investigate or sorry the the trials haven't even finished yet and we don't know what the verdict is so she's pretty much kind of giving a green light to say that he should be pardoned and we should move on from his actions and if we know anything about Donald Trump this is just emboldening action even if Nikki Haley doesn't go far in Iowa New Hampshire South Carolina Nevada etc Trump can now say see other candidates want me pardoned they think this is a witch hunt. Like, she is just green-lighting his narrative, much like I think a lot of the moderate Republicans back in 2019 did during his impeachment in the House and then acquittal in the Senate with the, you know, the perfect phone call towards Ukraine. And it's just not good. And I think Chris Christie responded fairly well to this. He slammed her today for making these remarks, basically saying that the trials sometimes haven't even started, especially the election interference one. And as I talked about yesterday, Nikki Haley hasn't actually said that she wouldn't take a spot in a second Trump administration, a potential position. And I do worry that she could be that somewhat center-right green light for Trump. And her saying she'd pardon him before we even know all the details, I don't know if it's for the better of the country because we've tried this road before. And I just think with the actions that, that Trump's taken, you need accountability or it seems like it's just getting worse. I don't know about you guys, but over, over the last four or five years, it seems like we're just slowly devolving. Trump's actions are devolving. The Republican Party's devolving. And there was a time when I said, maybe the person that wins this election should pardon Trump for the sanity of the, uh, of the country. We have to remember that Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon in 1974 for the Watergate scandal crimes that he may have committed. But I feel like that was such a different time and the country did kind of move on. But when Trump's talking about revenge and dictatorship and Nikki Haley has no chance really of becoming president, this is just a green light for Trump to downplay it and for a lot of more moderate Republicans to think this is just a witch hunt. And again, I don't know what Nikki Haley's lane is, but I'm starting to think more and more that she's trying to kowtow to Trump because she does want some peace in a second Trump administration. And that is somewhat troubling to me. Okay, moving on though, because Nikki Haley, I'm guessing, put out these statements because I was talking a few days ago about how the Colorado Supreme Court ruling may have 
cascading effects. And it looks like we're starting to see that because CNN notes here in quotes, Maine's top election official has removed former President Donald Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot based on the 14th Amendment's Insurrectionist Act. And now it's getting interesting because Maine's Secretary of State, Shenna, uh, Shenna Ballows, sorry, paused the decision because they're pending a potential appeal in the state court, which Trump's team said they intend to file, obviously. This is interesting, though, because it's the second state to disqualify Trump from office after Colorado did it. And this development, again, is a huge victory for Trump critics and people that want to see him held accountable, especially after January 6th. And they are trying to enforce this constitutional provision. Now, of course, Bellows is a Democrat. She issued this decision Thursday after there was an administrative hearing earlier this month about Trump's eligibility for office, for office. And the interesting thing here is that a bipartisan group of former state lawmakers actually filed the challenge against Trump. And Bellows wrote here in quotes, I do not reach this conclusion lightly. Democracy is sacred. I am mindful that no secretary of state has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot-based access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I'm also mindful, however, that no presidential candidate has ever engaged in insurrection. And, I mean, this is interesting. We're going to have to see how the appeals process goes. But I do think David Frum puts out an interesting piece. And basically the piece is, well, not, not basically, the piece in The Atlantic is titled, Suddenly Trump is Interested in Democracy. And Frum writes here in quotes, As Maine throws him off the ballot, the president who betrayed democracy is now pleading for its protections. And from, you know, I think brings up an interesting case about how when, <laughs> when the idea of a republic works, Trump says we're not a democracy. But now all of a sudden, he is now saying this is anti-democratic. And from gives some interesting examples here. He writes, Donald Trump wins the presidency with fewer votes than his opponent. His, his supporters say we're a republic, not a democracy. When state Republican parties in Wisconsin and North Carolina gerrymandered themselves into supermajorities, guys were a republic, not a democracy. When 41 senators block laws favored by 59, were a republic, not a democracy. Florida voters, he writes here, restored voting rights to felons only to see the reform disregarded by the state legislature, were a republic, not a, de not a democracy. But then... When states rule that Trump is an insurrectionist under the terms of the 14th Amendment, barring him from their ballots, they then say, let the people decide. And of course, this is not really surprising because I just don't need to waste the time pointing out all the contradictory rhetoric and the hypocrisy in the Trump era. When it's against him, it's anti-democratic. And when it's in his favor, guys, it's a republic. Look, I just want to see the right thing done here. You guys know that I am hesitant towards throwing him off of primary ballots. I really am. But if the courts can hold this up and think it's the right decision, then that is democracy working or a republic working. It's actually both working simultaneously. I was playing pool with one of my good buddies a few nights ago, and we were talking about this. And we were talking about how right now it seems kind of unclear if this is the right decision. Because if you look at what happened, for example, in Colorado, it was a 4-3 decision. 4-3 to me means it's genuinely split. I don't think you decide any of this with split decisions 
in courts. You define this and decide this at the ballot box. But again, Trump's rhetoric is going to make his supporters think this is anti-democratic. And that's just not the case. Like, this is a complicated system, and we're seeing all of this kind of unfold in real time, whether you like it or not. And as uh, going back to David Frum's piece for a minute, I mean, he writes a lot in this about how Trump has tried to do probably more than most to disqualify democracy, to end democracy. Frum writes here in quotes, in 2020, Trump tried to disqualify voters who'd exercised their right to vote by mail or whose ballots had for any reason not been counted by midnight on election day. Trump and his supporters have, con- have conjured a series of self-serving rules. Where, where antique, anti-majoritarian devices work for them, the antique, anti-majoritarian devices prevail. Where crude gaming of filibusters and gerrymandering works for them, the crude gaming must prevail. Where fraud and violence work for them, fraud and violence must prevail. And where invoking democratic ideas works for them, well, you can complete the sentence. And he just says, in this case, the opposite is kind of happening, and we kind of need to wait and see. And I think that is true. We need to wait and see. But I am interested to see if this cascading effect continues or if these are just a couple one-off cases. Maine, to me, is a little bit different than Colorado. Much more of a purple state. Should be interesting, guys. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is some updates on Ukraine here. The Economist notes here in quotes, dozens of people were killed and many more hurt in one of the heaviest waves of Russian attacks in Ukraine for months. The article continues, Ukrainian officials said 158 drones and missiles were launched across the country in overnight attacks. Some were shot down, actually most were shot down, but civilian targets, including educational facilities, residential buildings, and a maternity center were hit. President Joe Biden said the attacks showed that Congress must step up and approve further military aid for Ukraine without delay. So yesterday I was talking about how there are alternatives because obviously any more aid is not only delayed, but probably never going to happen based on the criteria we see right now, based on this irreconcilable kind of battle between border aid, which is just not bipartisan, and funding for Ukraine. And I think we are seeing again basically war crimes and just human rights violations occurring in Ukraine that remind me that something must be done. And so maybe maybe read that article I talked about last night talking about how we can use frozen Russian assets, seized Russian assets to, to, to give to the Ukrainians. Because these were the biggest raids in months. <clears throat> they were not just limited to Kiev, but they also happened in Kharkiv, Dnipro, Odessa, Lviv, Zaporizhia and other cities. And to put this into context, there were at least 110 missiles. And this was probably one of the biggest attacks that we've seen in such a short period of time. There's a guy, Yuri Inyat, who is a spokesperson for the Air Command, and he says that this is the most intensive attack we've seen in a short space. And The Economist notes, by contrast, about 160 missiles were launched on the first day of the war. So we're getting very, very close to that. So Russia clearly feels like it has the power. And I guess if you were Russia, you probably would feel like you have the power based on kind of the dynamics we're seeing in parts of the West and specifically in the United States, where it looks like Zelensky left the United States without anything. 
And you can be hesitant about Zelensky like I am. You don't have to like Zelensky. You can think he's great. Like, there's a lot of differing views on, on Zelensky. But generally speaking, there is need for aid here. And getting further into this, it looks like the main reason this is happening is because the long kind of range aerial battle is taking prominence because, let's be honest, ground warfare has reached a pretty relative stalemate. And from reports I'm reading in The Economist and Foreign Policy magazine, Russia is now making, albeit incremental gains, but Russia is making grain, making grains, making gains on the front line. And this is because Ukraine's counteroffensive was very underwhelming in the summer, and Russia is willing to pay off the families of deceased soldiers, and they can pull people out of Russian prisons and send them to the front lines. And let's just be honest, they have a shit ton of people to throw at this. So Russia is obviously going to make gains on the ground, on the front lines, especially when you have these small towns that are built in kind of plain-like conditions where you have surrounding forests where the Russians, from reports I've read, are just kind of entrenched in these forests. This is very World War I-esque battling going on here. So basically both the Russians and the Ukrainians are also turning to long-range aerial battle. And the problem here, though, is that the deaths are piling up here. The Economist writes here in quotes, at least 26 people were reported killed in the strikes and more than 100 injured. The numbers are going to rise. Later, the article talks about how in Kiev, several people were to be said trapped under the rubble of a collapsed warehouse. In Dnipro, the largest city near the front lines, a maternity ward was damaged and a shopping center partially destroyed. Those are war crimes. And <clears throat> Sergei Shogu, on Christmas... This is Russia's defense minister, talked about how his forces have taken full control of Marnichka, a suburb of Donetsk, which is in Ukraine's east. Of course, they've been fighting here for about nine, nine years, right, since the Obama years when we first heard about them going into these regions. But we are seeing fierce battles throughout the country. And I think this shows that as the ground war is getting less and less stable, we are going to see more violence in the air. And unfortunately, I think this means more death in Ukrainian cities. Ukrainian cities specifically are more susceptible to this, and it is very troubling going forward. And I guess when you reach a stalemate, you need to find something to change the tides here, and it just means that you use aerial battles to try to overwhelm Ukraine. And that's what we're seeing here. And a report in The Economist says that a source in Ukraine's general staff, staff sorry, says attacks on Crimea will increase over the winter, and Russia, for its part, is going to continue targeting facilities like the Red Brick Factory. And basically, this is going to be a battle where each day is going to be lived as it comes, and it could get pretty damn brutal. And we are going to see probably the launch of bombers that have highly destructive glide bombs, which have been terrorizing troops on the ground. And we also are going to see... Just, just massive destruction here. So I think this is a reminder to me that something needs to be done. Albeit, I can't recommend exactly what that is at this time. But it seems like the war is more of a stalemate than ever before. But at the same time, we are seeing attacks on maternity wards and schools and malls. And every time I think Republicans say, why should we send money to Ukraine? But they also want to fund, I think, a one-sided 
bombing of Gaza, and they also want to do mass deportations and completely rewrite asylum at the same time, you have to ask, what is the principle here and what are we doing to actually help defend values, defend the democratic values that we claim to stand for? And I'm just not seeing that. So I, I think we need to do something. Congress needs to stand up, and if not, we need to maybe go to using frozen assets, as I talked about yesterday. So anyways, a little bit shorter episode. Yesterday was going to be the shorter episode. Today was going to be the longer, but we switched. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. I'm out. Adios.